Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech and a regular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, technology, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter. It's a weekly email that covers important shifts in marketing technology. People who work in the world's largest media tech and marketing companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay, today I am joined by AJ Rolsey. AJ is the founder of Core Marketing Method and also the founder of HealthPoint Research. Uh, AJ is an entrepreneur who has, over the last two decades, has helped multinational corporations launch and grow brands, drive multiple billions of dollars in sales and revenue across 50-plus national markets. Uh, AJ recently support, supported some MarTech Weekly research for a paper on MarTech in India and in Asia. And from his research, uh, working with some fantastic education institutions, has really given myself some wonderful insights into how community and culture informs the technology and entrepreneurship and the change that we see across the MarTech landscape. And so today we dive into exactly that. How MarTech companies are started and grown across various regions, uh, how they're starting to grow in places like China and India, or in also places like Silicon Valley and San Francisco, or out of Europe. And we talk about the cultural nuances uh, that change the course of technology development, uh, how entrepreneurs are cha- entrepreneurship is tra- changing across the generations, and if the world of marketing technology is shifting from Silicon Valley from west to east. And so now I give you AJ Rolsey. How are you doing? Hey, Juan. That's a, that's a lovely introduction, mate. I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me on. Oh, no, my pleasure. Now, uh, I need to know, what has been your career? It's You're working in a, a, a multiple different industries. You've driven a lot of great value for brands across so many different regions. You're a very well-traveled person from what I gather as well. Um, can you give us a snapshot? What are you doing in market at the moment? And what does your career look like um, over the years? Uh, thanks, Juan. I, you know, mine was a little bit unusual in some respects. And I suppose I'd love to say that the various steps I've taken have been by design. But in reality, most of them have been kind of happy accidents, a few missteps as well. But uh, if I was to summarize it in a single sentence, my career looks something like, uh, you know, completing high school, going to university where I where I focused on psychology. And, and most of the reason for that was that my friend and I, who got exactly the same high school mark and were thinking about where we should go to uni, we kind of surprised ourselves by being able to get into Sydney Uni. And, and we thought, what would be a, a kind of a degree for two guys that don't know what they want to do with their lives at all, uh, that might be general enough just to sort of see us keep going when we're finishing year 12 in, in Australian high school. <laughs> and so we chose psychology, went to Sydney Uni, it was that scientific. Uh, but off the back of that, I ended up doing a bit of work with young people with behavior disorders, oddly enough, nothing to do with the commercial space at all. Um, and that was interesting, but, you know, prior to that one, prior to sort of getting this this job in a non-commercial field, I had grown up as a kid always with a bit of an entrepreneurial itch or sort of inclination towards business in some form. Um, I suspect that if anyone's listening to your podcast, they probably over-index for having the same kind of an entrepreneurial itch, you know, so many people in marketing do, for example. So I suppose that I, I went into that line of work because in, you know, if, if we're going to largely talk about culture in this chat today, uh, Australian culture back in that era, so, you know, through the 80s and into the early 90s, it's a strange thing because although by 
today's common lexicon, I guess I would refer to myself as an entrepreneur in Australia, at least back in that era, the, the term entrepreneur was a really loaded kind of quality. We, we had individuals in the news over here, uh, people like Alan Bond or Christopher Skates, which people of my era will remember in Australia, and generally something to do with our culture at the time. In Australia, to be an entrepreneur was somehow considered to be, you know, at best a bit flaky or at worst somehow dishonest and not kind of like really a functioning member of society. And so it was this rather negative kind of view. So, so I never even contemplated as I went through school that being an entrepreneur is something you could do with your life. It was sort of a, a, a term that was largely pejorative. And so I'm happy to say that's changed a lot. And thanks to, to you know examples elsewhere around the world that have slowly started to influence here in Australia as well. The concept of entrepreneurship has, has taken on a different glow, which is a really positive thing. But for me, what happened was I went and, and sort of went in, into this non-commercial area working with young people. And, and uh, you know this, this was to do with the education system or the legal system at the time. And it was largely uh, funded by a government, government programs. And so even as a very young person in my early 20s, I kind of learned quickly that certain government programs stopped getting funding quite politically at the drop of a hat. And so that happened to me in my early 20s. And, and I never really quite understood why I was, even though I thought that was good work I was doing and it was enjoyable, I, I never really felt that that was the right fit for me. And I had an opportunity to go and work as a junior marketer for a company that we have here in Australia called Optus, which for Americans listening to you, it's a bit similar to, to Verizon or, or wireless in the UK, something like that. It's one of our big telcos. And I'm showing my age here, mate. I went in as a, as a junior marketer working in the emerging business unit, which back in those days was broadband internet. <laughs> so I, I kind of got into, into the IT and C space a little bit, kind of learned some of the fundamentals of marketing. Some generous people put a couple of really good books in my lap to, to read while I had my commute to work each day. And, and that really started to shape my interest around what business could be about. So authors like Robert Cialdini, who have subsequently had the pleasure of working with directly, who wrote a book called Influence and more recently Persuasion, and then some other great writers, you know, Gerber and the EMF books like these, these old classics. And I, I kind of realized that actually there is something to this business and entrepreneurship and marketing and, and sort of behavioral science in commerce that, that was really kind of my cup of tea. And so um, I, I, I sort of cut my teeth, learn a fair bit while working at Optus for a few years there. And then I got an opportunity to go and work in healthcare. And uh, back in those days, it was a really interesting thing. It's changed a little bit. But one thing that I can tell you was I was just surprised at the scale and scope when I got into, into the healthcare industry, again, as a marketing person, it's a remarkable field. And, and really now for 20-something years in health, I've been working as a, as a marketing person in various functions around the world. That culminated after being, a, you know, for example, a marketing director. I then ended up moving out into my own business as a consultant predominantly into that field. That's kind of what I do now. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. Um, that's fascinating that you worked with Robert Cialdini. I mean, I remember reading his book many years ago when it was my first real introduction into digital marketing. Right. Understanding the, all the different layers of how people are influenced and motivated to do certain things really mm -hmm. changed my perspective. And, um, you know, it's funny that you say that uh, marketing is very adjacent to entrepreneurship. And yeah. I've definitely seen that. There's a lot of people that work in marketing that end up starting their own company or building their right. own business or even do their own consulting, right? That's just a different form of entrepreneurship. Why do you think that is? 
What is this uh, of alignment between entrepreneurship and marketing? I, I think if you think about one of the really core skill sets of somebody who's a, a good marketer, and, and I'd love to talk about that actually, but but somebody who's a good marketer and somebody who's a good entrepreneur or feel inclined to do either one of those things, really what they do is they look at a situation, they see the human beings mixing around in that situation and they they have an intuition and that they uh, they want to bring together a solution out of the ether. That's really what they both do. So marketing does this in a way of either developing a product or sort of thinking about promotions or setting pricing for things uh, or various other things that marketers do. Um, and then entrepreneurs do many of those things themselves. But uh, when we think of entrepreneurship, we tend to think of smaller enterprises, usually a smaller team or even an individual uh, who, who kind of does all of that stuff. But it's really about, I think, predicting the future you know if you're a good marketer you're kind of saying here's where i want to take a brand or if you're in uh, if you're in entrepreneurship you're, you're saying here's where i want to take a business and you're sort of seeing the future and helping to bring it to life so i think that's what's really alike between those two sorts of vocations yeah i'd agree with that i would say perhaps the four p's right like you can make mm -hmm. p's of marketing product place um promotion and price you know, yep. you can take the four P's and you can map that basically to a rough entrepreneurship frame framework for starting a new company. Certainly. Um, I think that is that, but I think marketing out of all business disciplines is by far the most creative as well. And That's creative true. people are also quite, I think, aligned to entrepreneurship uh, purely because as you say, like plucking, seeing, assessing a situation, seeing a problem and then plucking a solution out of that and then yep. trying to take that to market. Um, and look, let's face it, right? Marketers are fun to be around and, and entrepreneurship <laughs> is definitely high risk, high reward. Um, it's a lot of um, unknowns as well, uh, which is definitely the case with dealing with people in marketing. So um, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of really interesting overlaps. But um, as we settle into this discussion, I think um, I want to ask you a, a question about entrepreneurship and what makes a good entrepreneur? So from your research, looking at all different regions and, you know, MarTech is a very entrepreneurship friendly industry in that we've got mm. over the course of less than eight years, we've gone from a small, less than a thousand marketing technology startups to almost 10,000 now. And so there's a lot of people that have been building new technology solutions over the past um, six or seven years. It's fascinating. And there's a lot of entrepreneurship in this space, but I want to know from your view, like what defines a good entrepreneur? What does that look like? That's such a good question. You know, I, I've, I've actually had this question come up to me before one, and it's one that I, I really like thinking about myself. And the answer I'll give you is the same as I've given elsewhere. And that is that in my view, a good entrepreneur uh, can mean more than one thing. So we can, first of all, think of somebody who is technically good at the process of entrepreneurship. That means somebody who de delivers the outcomes of a business, right? So, uh, so that might be growth and profitability, those sorts of things. But you could also ask the question, a good entrepreneur is the same way that you might be a good neighbor or a good friend. And that means that uh, you are doing whatever you do day to day. And our work life makes up such a large portion of our life. But you do that in such a way that it produces something that's good, not only for yourself, but potentially for the world or for customers or employees. And so I think for me, it's a, it has, uh, you know, the English language is a little bit strange in some ways. It means two things in this instances, somebody who's effective as a marketer and a business person and an entrepreneur and somebody who is happy to sit down with grandma uh, and make her proud about what you do or what you've done. So I, I think it's those two things in parallel. 
So it's the business acumen and then also the personal fulfillment. Yeah, largely. And, and so yes. actually, even a bit of nuance on the personal fulfillment thing, it's not only about, I think you do get personal fulfillment from this, but I think it, it, even more broadly speaking, I think it's it's about being something that others would look at the work you do and say, yeah, actually, that's a net positive to society. You know, so mm-hmm. not, and, and I, I must admit, I draw some contrast between that picture and what I occasionally see in places like Silicon Valley, not all the time, but sometimes. And it does echo some um, uh, some pretty interesting research that I did in the early 2010s when I was based in Europe at the time. That really, it, it uh, examined more than a thousand startups, uh, small and medium-sized enterprises. And um, you know, at the time, I was I was really interested in the psychology of risk for entrepreneurs or founders or, in many cases, marketers. Uh, and I would love to talk about Martech in that instance. But but uh, in that piece of research, one thing that we found out was that actually people who are doing something that's also good, not only being a good, effective business person, but actually creating something good, even if it's in a small kind of non-grandiose way, but doing something that's good, which is you know, generally meaning something that's somewhat selfless, then what we ended up finding was that that person tended to be somehow uh, inoculated a little bit from the higher highs and lower lows that somebody in entrepreneurship typically is exposed to. Um, it might help if I give an illustration. So, so what I mean by that is somebody who has a great day in entrepreneurship maybe just landed a huge deal, got a new client, perhaps had a capital raising, did something really amazing, and that sort of sets their world on fire in a positive way. But we also know that if you're in entrepreneurship, you're often you're much more exposed to those really heavy going challenges and, and you kind of wear it 24-7 more than perhaps an employee does of, of some other kind of line of work. And what we found was that if people were were wanting to be a good human being in their business, when they had those inevitable tough periods, what we were happy to report was that those people felt that at least they could hold on to that good stuff that they were generating, the good outcome, big or small, that they also had deliberately engineered into their business. Now, you might ask, okay, that's all wonderful. You don't need to preach to me. Why, you know, what, what relevance does that have to me? The important thing is also that people who did that, because they probably were more robust in themselves because they were buoyed upwards with this sort of positive work they were doing, it meant they were on a greater frequency, a greater average, if you like, turning up and giving closer to 100% of their own capability into their business. And for I would say that in a large organization, a marketer, or even in a small entrepreneurial startup, the founder, these two people have a sort of outsized effect on the success of their organization or their company or their business. And so what that means is if you're somebody that can more often turn up closer to giving 100% each day that you're working on your projects, then that has this dramatic overall, that is some sort of dramatic outcome. And so this was a really nice, happy story to tie a bow around it. So a classic example, a a guy was developing a piece of software that he thought was pretty novel, it was a a nice startup. And he had a team of developers who were Bangladeshi and and, uh, kind of working in a a different part of the world that was less less affluent on average. And he he just decided at some point that his uh, dev team were going to be rewarded, not just in pay, but he was going to set up some work to help with the education of of this team's kids because they all happen to be parents. And I was chatting with him when we were doing some interviews and he simply explained to me that, you know, he had, he, he, at that time, he was going through a pretty rough patch with his business and some unexpected things hitting him from left field, so to speak. And he simply remarked to me, he said, you know, I can always just take a little bit of comfort that even if this whole thing folds and doesn't succeed or we don't reach our milestone, 
those little handful of families over there are always going to be impacted impacted for good, you know, for the better. And so he just said, that sort of helps me turn up to my desk and get my work done when frankly, sometimes I'd rather just, you know, curl up and put on Netflix. So, he, you know, so, so there seems to be this connection between being a, a, a good, if you like, a ethical business person and being a good as an effective business person, marketer or, or entrepreneur. Hmm. There's a, it's so interesting because you've got the, um, the, like, how do you change the world type thing? Right. And there's only mm. a certain amount of people in that in the world that think like that, right. They actually have right. the and the willingness to try and change some big problem in an industry, mm. in a market, in the world, in society. I mean, there's only, a, there's everyone dreams about those big ambitions, but there's very few people actually do it, right. They actually try sure. to execute and I think you mentioned just before about the failure, right? Like even if this thing packs up um, uh, to your colleague who, you know, was going through a bit of, a bit of a rough time, they said, even if it's, we have to pack up the startup and if it fails, um, he knows that he is satisfied in um, helping at least one customer or one group of people, you know? And so exactly. you know, I find that, I find that also, you know, um, uh, what's quite interesting is that, um, and you kind of see this language within startups is this whole idea of evangelism, right? Hmm. In um, companies. So uh, evangelism is a religious concept, right? And it's yeah, an idea true. of like, okay, we're going to go and spread this whole, whole message with the rest of the world, this message and this value that we're creating with the company, right? And within an organization. And so hmm. like you've got evangelism and then there's tech companies and i've got a number of um colleagues who are evangelists like product evangelists company mm -hmm. evangelists salesforce hires evangelists um you know so it's this concept of like sharing this amazing thing that we're doing with the rest of the world but it's also deeply religious and philosophical evangelism as well right right so i think there's so many overlaps within that world of like you know purpose trying to do something good for the world altruism but then also like theology, right? And thinking about how do you actually spread a message around and convert people to believing a certain thing as well. Like even just as we're having this conversation, you know, we're watching in real time, the collapse of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he was an effective altruist. He was someone who was donating to the Democratic Party in the US, like I think right. the second highest donor. And so- oh, wow. But, you know, he also was doing a lot of shady stuff in the background, right? And yeah. using customer funds to fund a whole bunch of other bailouts and projects and venture startups and all kinds of stuff, right? So he's yeah. misappropriating funds, but he captivated a very large and very influential audience with this purpose message, right? Of like, mm. how do we solve big problems like climate and poverty and access to banking? And so yes. I agree with you that there's there's this really fantastic, really wonderful overlap between people not being just in it for the money. They're really there to serve others and to make companies do great things for people in a, in a market or an industry. Um, mm. But I do, I, I do think that, you know, there is a big part of the money is a big part. Isn't it? I mean, like even with marketing, you know, of course, marketing, you're employed as a marketer, but you have a very significant influence a misaligned influence over how much a business, a brand might grow, right? right? So if you're an accountant or if you're working the say legal department, your jobs are obviously very important, but marketing has this misaligned outcome from the work they do. One fan, mm. one successful campaign, one fantastic use case, one um, strategy that plays off well could lead to millions or billions of dollars in, in new revenue. Right. Whereas with 
accounting and legal, it's more, let's keep this business stable <laughs> you know? yeah, no, and let's make sure. sure that we're doing the right things here. So I think that, you know, the money aspect of entrepreneurship is obviously attractive for very, very good reasons. I mean, you know, starting a yeah, company yeah. means that you have say equity and you have more value that you can create as uh, in compared to being an employee. But I would like to shift now a little bit into the, to how you're seeing different cultures react to marketing technology innovation. So are, are you seeing the shift from um, entrepreneurs starting new marketing technology companies from um, say the West, like Silicon Valley and um, mm. you know uh, the West of the New York and these sort of these original tech hubs um, over the past 30 years into places like Bangalore, places like China, Singapore, other areas like that. What yeah. are you seeing a shift that, of, of more innovation moving towards um, west to east what does that look certainly. like certainly I, I think these days it's actually going both ways but um i, I guess uh, you know out, even outside of marketing or, or or this kind of line of work if you if you look at what has been happening in transforming economies around the world india and china to that you pointed out are very good examples then in many cases culturally places like the us have done a sensational job and the west in general have done a pretty good job of of exporting culture to these other places to say look Here's what uh, you know. Liberal democracies can afford you. You can live in in you know comfort and entertainment and all these sorts of stuff. So if you if you're growing up in in uh, Delhi or Beijing or many other places around the world, for that matter, developing countries in Africa or what have you, you could watch a movie and and just sort of dream about being in these places in the West. Which it, it, quite accurately, we you know you and I both happen to be located in Australia while we're having this chat. I've lived in the US and, and Europe as well, and I can tell you. That in the places where I've been, you know, abnormally fortunate to live and currently do, we do live a ridiculously comfortable life compared to many others. And so I think the background canvas is that people see have seen the West and thought, right, I'd like the route to that kind of living, please, even if I still want to live in India or China or somewhere. And so that's the background. And so, of course, it becomes sort of aspirational to adopt some of these cultural things. Access to wealth is certainly one of them. And if you've grown up in a place where you've been, uh, surrounded by or even experiencing systemic multi-generational poverty, well, the, you're absolutely going to to be crying out for s some relief from that pretty terrible situation. And so I will say this, MarTech especially, more than anything else actually, well, at least in conjunction with, with one other thing that I'll address with you, MarTech has sort of had this uh, ability to democratize some of this opportunity. So in the past, if we go, if, you know, if we roll back the clock a generation or something, if you wanted to start up a business in somewhere like the US, you would typically have access to infrastructure, customers, media channels, finance in a, in a very developed kind of way that was not going to be afforded to the average person living out, you know, in a regional part of China or, or somewhere in India. Um, but things changed, right? So we see that with the emergence of things like um, fairly affordable mobile telephony with some sort of basic smartphone type of functionality, absolutely the proliferation of internet connectivity, also access to simple and accessible banking. All of these things have meant that now that huge chasm between the West and these developing countries has, has closed up significantly. And I think I might've mentioned to you once before one, when we had a chat that I've always been intrigued by 
this initiative, which which helps to call out the other part of these two prongs. The first one being technology and the democratization and access to the sorts of things that make marketing or business function so well. The other thing that's happened is best described by this activity that the UN undertook. So um, if you if you roll back the clock about 25 years ago, the UN looked at the world's population and they saw this vast number of people living in systemic poverty and they set themselves an ambition which is a noble one, which was to halve the proportion of the world that was living in in the grips of, you know, sustained systemic poverty. Now, I, I'd love to say that their great work was what changed all that, but actually what happened was in this 20-year time frame that they gave themselves to, to hit this halving of poverty, they actually achieved it in 15 years, but in reality, they didn't achieve it. One. What happened was that there was changes in policy in, in many of these markets around the world, most importantly China, but several others as well, where basically things got sort of relaxed at a practical level. Individuals that might have been previously subsistence living in some fashion decided that actually that some, some basic fundamental commerce, using some of my own creativity or initiative wherever I might have lived, I can now actually, instead of just being, for example, a subsistence farmer or something, uh, or working in totally unskilled labor, I can create a little value, putting a little bit of creativity and effort and maybe take something to market or, or, or kind of do something a little bit more developed. And this had like an untold benefit to humanity, right? Again, I, I know I'm, I, I'm, I'm listening to you and I have this chat and I know I'm sound, coming off sounding very preachy. That's not my intention. But but the, the happy thing that I think most reasonable people would look at would say, okay, if we've had, you know, 200 million people being lift out, lifted out of systemic poverty in a single generation, that's just a great outcome for everybody. And so those two things happened in, in sort of conjunction. One, better access to technology, internet connectivity, phoning and banking, that kind of stuff. And then simultaneously, sort of the legal and practical ability to be able to say, all right, I'd like to run a business rather than just not being allowed to at all. And so those, those sorts of things have changed those landscapes dramatically. And so you ask the question, is the West sort of, you know, inculcating the East or vice versa. I would say now that there's been enough years that have gone by that some places in these parts of the world where I've been lucky enough to visit, spent a fair bit of time in India this year, for example, you're certainly seeing places like Bangalore, for that matter, parts of Eastern Europe that have decided that with this newfound access and with all of this local energy, they can do a pretty good job of, a, of producing businesses or technologies to sell back to the West or to influence the West. And so we're now seeing the tide sort of swing back in both directions a little bit more, which uh, which I think is a really good thing. I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, yeah. It's one of the things that we don't talk about when it comes to like big tech and companies like Meta or Google, um, Alibaba, TikTok, and right. so much journalism, so much press is focused on these companies and their systemic risk to things like privacy or content moderation or, you know, right. distraction in terms of, you know, people using their smartphones as devices way more than ever. But like yep. I just have some stats from Scott Galloway. He did it recently did a research piece on this. He says, you know, and from 1980 to 2004, the world's economic output doubled from 35 trillion to 70 trillion in just 24 years, a single generation as much economic potency has come online as had taken the entire human species and its entire history to accumulate. <laughs> so That's amazing. If, you, if you think of that, like today, the world generates roughly as much output as in a month as it did in the year 1950. 
<laughs> so, amazing, isn't it? so if you look at the stats, right? So the percentage of people that live below the poverty line defined as, so this is research from World Bank, people living underneath the poverty line, that definition is $1.90 a day. So if you're getting less than that a day, then you're under the poverty line. Yeah. And it went from in 1981, the world went from just under 40, just under 50%, about 47% to mm-hmm. less than 25%, less than actually 20%. So something yeah, between that's 19- that halving. And it's, it's halved. And so yeah. I think a massive correlation outside of increased globalism and outside of perhaps stronger economic policy is, is the web, as you mentioned oh, before. Yeah, the the like in some places in the third world, uh, they have a smartphone that is so cheap to buy, and the internet is so accessible, and they've got apps that load straight away, like Facebook and Google, that it's brought a whole generation into untapped opportunity, into a- information access, into all kinds of things, and that's the exactly. big trade off, right? Is a lot of this access and this affordability is pioneered by companies like Google. And companies like Meta that also, they obviously trade our attention and the data that we generate for, for monetized ads. And so whenever I look at the, the situation in terms of tech innovation and all of these people coming out of poverty, you have to look on both sides. The, po- the positive is that there's never been less in terms of just a share of the total population in the world, never been less people that are living under the poverty line, but also right. there are the risks in terms of privacy and, um, and, and, you know, content moderation and all those other things that when you bring, I think more than 5 billion people are online. Now you bring that many people onto the web, there's going to be some problems. <laughs> of course there will. And, you know, you know I'll, I'll go so that. far. I'll go so far as to say that I'm surprised that we're not in a global war right now because of access information. If you go back 700 years to the Reformation, um, when the uh, printing press was a new innovation, which allowed people to scale their information uh, and their content and their written works many, many times over. Before the printing press, people would literally wrote um, scribing and copying uh, works of, um, of writing. So the printing press ushered in 200 years of European wars and ushered in a whole new stream of religion. And so we got this sort of printing press, Gutenberg press 2.0, that scales it infinitely more. And it's brought far more access to far more people than we've ever seen in human history. And you kind Mm. of wonder, okay, wow, this, the one wonderful thing is it's creating more entrepreneurs. It it certainly is. You know, I I guess it's a fortunate thing that we're not seeing the same sorts of wars that we did at that point historically. But one, I, I suppose what we do see with access to information is that the information moves much more freely than it did historically, I, I guess from an anthropological point of view or what have you. So, so you do see things like the use of technology in driving popular change, things like the Arab Spring was really kind of based largely on, on accessible sharing of information, stuff like that. So um, it, it might be that the agitation that this technological revolution has afforded has just looked different, but that does, the conflict might still exist. And in fact, it, I mentioned, I think to you that I was living in the States for a while. There's no doubt that technology has had a bearing on things like day-to-day public life in the United States and the increasingly kind of polarized situation that people are within the one culture there. So I think, I think technology is overwhelmingly a good thing. It does come with potentially a price that we have to pay or be willing to kind of hate against some of its, its potential issues in total 
we wouldn't change it. The, the, the technology is there ultimately as a, as a net benefit, but we should be mindful that it's not completely a bed of roses and we, we probably do need to kind of be mindful of some of these things. You know, in, in the case of the places where I've been doing work outside of the West, I will say that not only are, are they taking some of those great innovations that you've mentioned with the likes of Google or, or whoever else it might be, these sort of big names that we think of, but in some cases, their own needs have helped to drive some of the changes we've experienced in the West. So, so you know, much of the, you know, mobile transactions that we think about were actually, you know, born in, of all places, in Africa, where we saw a, a so-called leapfrogging technology where they never had twisted copper line for telephones, but then... You know, there's no telephones in, in many of these places within India, within Africa, I should say. But then at some point, mobile telephony took root. And so with access to that, many entrepreneurial people there realized that they needed to be able to kind of manage quick and easy transfer of funds. And so actually the, the forerunners to things like PayPal emerged out of those needs and, and sort of later took root in, in the West. So I, I just think it's a nice thing for us to look at human beings being creative and smart using tech in a way that is helpful around a problem and be ready to learn from all sorts of fields. So I mentioned at the start, for example, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work in healthcare. A big part of what I do is not rocket science, really. All, all I'm doing and my colleagues in my little firm, we look at what's some great examples of, of marketing or, or commercial thinking in adjacent fields or other industries. We thoughtfully consider how that could apply in a new context within healthcare and we try and do that. So, you know, I don't have to tell anyone these days that things like AI is such a helpful thing or, um, you know, you can you can cut down on wastefulness, which is sort of one of my big bugbears, not at a personal level, but thinking more about the culture of business. Wastefulness is overwhelmingly unhelpful concept, and yet we have a huge tolerance for waste. Whereas things like MarTech, automations, use of machines to sort of help, it drives amazing efficiency. Not only does it democratize opportunity and, and access for smaller enterprises to compete on a more level playing field with big enterprise, but it just simply cuts down on waste. It, it can do, uh, you know, it, you can use a, a novel piece of software or a great little, uh, you know, a, a piece of robotics or something like that to to achieve in an hour would have taken a couple of days previously. So I like the fact that it's technology in the right hands of marketers or business people is hugely democratizing and it also cuts down on waste which ultimately doesn't help anybody so let's circle in a little bit on waste um it's great to unpack for um our audience the what do you mean by wastefulness and yep. negligence in the tech entrepreneurship space right now i mean um yeah. perhaps we can touch a little bit on vc and um equity and how that influences um, entrepreneurship. Um, but yeah, what do you mean by wastefulness? What does that look like? Well, for me, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm not blind to the reality that business has to first and foremost generate a financial output. So so um, if you're not generating a profit in business, then you're not actually running a business, you're running something else. They might be worthy activities, but they're just not a business. So I don't think there's any shame in saying, you know, we want to make profit, we want to drive revenue and, and achieve margin and so on. But what you see, unfortunately, in the last, you know, perhaps last couple of decades, um, I think predominantly since the dot-com bubble burst, what's tended to happen is that what you and I or any other person on the street would think of as money when we go into the store to buy something or if we want to feed our families or whatever, we spend money. This is the resource that the whole world uh, kind of utilizes to, to make transactions. What's happened in the world of business far too often 
And I will admit one that I'm a bit of an outlier in this regard as somebody who's in startup space myself and does work with incubators and the like. I, I still have had a bit of a perennial problem with the fact that we deliberately put blinkers on to ignore the fact that the money that we're often accessing, we don't treat it like money, right? So uh, let's say, for example, you had a great startup idea and you're, you know, the, the, uh, the, the standard process in in startup culture is to try and raise capital, build a team, make the product, put it, take it out to the uh, to the world, and then hopefully have some sort of an exit, which is a buyout or maybe more capital raising or, or an IPO or something. What seems to have been lost in in this almost religious focus on growth is that actually a business should be profitable, right? And so if you're not profitable, at least having a clear pathway to profit and and a logical approach that you'll see. You know, I understand there's unit economics and so on but but a business fundamentally should have a logical pathway towards profitability if it totally is without that and and all the focus is purely on acquiring customers and this kind of uh, concept of growth to satisfy investors then i actually think there's a pretty serious problem around the way that the money involved is concerned and you can tell that that's true because we human beings have put all sorts of euphemisms and other terms around it so that we don't have to address the fact that we're often burning through a ton of money with a fairly high degree of negligence or carelessness uh, purely after growth without sort of thinking about uh, thinking it through with any sort of somber mind and the reason for that is we call it things like runway or, or even capital or we, we call about a, a vc raise or an, an investment but we very rarely say we've got this much money, we're spending X money with a hope to sort of gener generate Y money. Um, I, I don't think it's a problem to talk about money. I don't think it's vulgar. I think it makes sense in a business. But what I don't really like is that far too many uh, startup founders have thought that the only thing that they're really supposed to do is to impress investors to get more investment to fund sometimes a fairly garish lifestyle, I might add, uh, mm. and not actually produce anything that's meaningful or helpful so so really the best version of entrepreneurship or marketing is one in which the professor uh, the professional person in that capacity can sit down with grandma at christmas time which is not far for us now and be proud <laughs> to tell her what we did right for over the year and usually what that means is we've taken some money plus our other resources like our time and focus and we've we've added a bit of creativity and effort maybe a good teamwork uh, we've maybe got a bit lucky, but we've produced something that is worth more than the sum of its parts, right? We've sort of created value out of the ether, which is this wonderful skill that entrepreneurs and marketers do have. If you haven't taken that approach, though, and you've just said, all I'm going to do is grow, I'm, I'm simply going to grow, then in many cases, you see far too many of these businesses produce very little in comparison to the money that they've often wasted without a lot of thought. And I, I will say that in, in many cases, the folks investing are equally to blame for that because they're with, with this uh, commitment to deal flow and, and often uh, just playing a, a, a kind of a abstract averages game where, they, where they're happy for their stable of resources for one to win and 99 to fail if need be. But then I think it, it just removes everybody from an understanding that that money is inherently important and it, there's an opportunity cost. If you're using that money on something carelessly or without a good set of frameworks and understanding in place, that money could have done a heck of a lot of good in another application. So I, I just sort of think um, that the change in capital markets that we're currently experiencing, you and I are talking towards the end of 2022 now, and things have sort of changed pretty 
rapidly in, in the last sort of half a year, money is drying up, by the way. And so all of a sudden, folks who were, um, you know, they'd give uh, they'd give a million dollar check for anything that had the word AI attached to it not that long ago, all of a sudden are saying, oh, actually, great, you've got a business concept, but I would like to see that it, it's a real business, you know. That'd be nice. I think, yeah. So, so I think, and in, in, in truth and in total, I think that's a, a positive change because I think, we can all get excited about our product or our the thing that we're working on or, or the platform that we want to push out to the world. But we should know that ultimately it, it shouldn't just be shiny and interesting and impressive. It should also generate a profit if we want to make a business around it. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree that, you know, business should be profitable. The sad thing I see often is that you have, um, particularly in MarTech startups that are profitable and then they go VC and they raise a series A uh, yeah. And then they, all of a sudden they're burning cash like crazy, laying off staff after a couple of years. We've just seen that, right? We've been through this yeah. two year hype cycle of um, tech upward swing. And now yeah. we're crashing. Everything's crashing to the ground. Most companies are laying off staff. Um, right. So, you know, is um, I think part of it, AJ, I think there's three parts of it, actually. The first part is um, the mental models for tech investing. Um, I think mm-hmm. are somewhat broken, right? So Peter Thiel years ago talks about this concept of value creation and value capture, right? Yes. So if you're building a software platform or a technology that creates a lot of value for users and it can grow really fast, that's fantastic. All you need to do with then is figure out how to how to um, capture that value. Say, mm-hmm. you know, Meta, Facebook in the early days, they went out to high school, they went to university students and they they grew really quickly, right? But they struggled to monetize for a long time. And it was only the VC dollars that kept them going until yeah. they actually figured out a scalable, profitable way to build an ad business around it. Um, yeah. You know, uh, MySpace did not have that, that same situation. They had a growing platform, but they couldn't scale ads. So they couldn't really take it to the next level in terms of becoming a global platform. And so, right. you know, uh, I would say the value creation, value capture paradigm is something that I think fuels a lot of tech investing, which I think is perhaps mis- misled. I mean, even now there's a fantastic new startup called um, Gas, which is a high school students polling app. It's kind of like a social media app and they cool. charge users. So they've gone out with a free mod- freemium model with a uh, paid subscription to get more features in the app. And they're a team of five developers are making $5 million in like cool. less than 40, 40 days. Unbelievable. That's amazing. And they're growing. Yeah. They grew in like, I think they're adding a 30,000 users a week or something at this point in time. And so that's a really interesting, because that breaks the model. They've got no VC funding. They're growing really, yeah. really fast. They're profitable. Um, yeah. You know, so I think that that's part of it is the value capture, value creation equation, trying to make that work because let's face it, you do need a lot of customers to be profitable. Eventually. Oh, sure. And, 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 and the, the IP, yeah. Right. One. So, so, and to clarify, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with going after VC money, like I, or, or for a VC investor to kind of take a bet on, you know, to diversify their risk over twenty options or something. So, I, I don't really have a problem with that. I think it's more that I think every now and then the individuals involved in making decisions just need to reflect on, okay, um, what's the output here? So, so I think the problem has been, if I can put it this way that there's been too much of a, a willingness to, to take on board risk that you don't need to take on. Every business is, is inherently going to have some risk and you're making bets and the VC person is also making bets. But I, I think what I don't like is when 
there's such a myopia, single vision on growth that um, that that sort of makes everybody forget that actually ultimately this thing has to be a business that holds together and makes sense, even if it's <laughs> at some point in the future. You know what I mean? So it's like I, I do get the idea that maybe we need to get a lot of users and we need to refine the product and then one day hit profitability. But that that little suffix statement is the whole deal. So you can say, all right, we're not profitable right now and actually we won't be inside 12 months, but we have a pathway in mind that will take us towards profitability, even if we have to pivot within there or even if we need to kind of refine our thinking and do some experiments on the hop. That's all fine, but I, I think that the issue is that, it, let me put it this way, I invest in things myself, one, uh, you know, startups, and, and if I do, I really want to hear words from the founder that they that they actually kind of give a damn about a path towards profit, profitability. <laughs> so, it's, you know, yeah, and, and even if they're still having to flesh that out, I kind of want to see what they're talking about. And and that also, I, I will say, in the great example you gave of this app that's, that's taken a different route, a big part of it is understanding market fit, right? So am I really meeting a need for people that's worth someone paying a few bucks for something? You know, like at its most fundamental, if, if a kid's going to open up a lemonade stand somewhere, it's because people are thirsty or they're cute or whatever it might be. And there's a reason someone's going to pay 50 cents for a drink. Like that very fundamental thing needs to be true also in startups. Even if you even if you don't have profitability as soon as you'd like, but you've got an idea in mind that the, that the business is kind of truthful. That's, that's, I think that kind of philosophy running in the background would actually help a lot of businesses that potentially fail, that they might not fail because they might make wiser choices and have a, a different view of risk and the way that they make internal investments and stuff. So for, for me, that's a big part of it. And and I, I, I didn't mean to get totally preachy with you, but I, I will say that in total, I think MarTech, which is I know an area that you, that you kind of... Um, do such a great, great job of, of kind of investigating. MarTech on the whole can do a lot of these things really good. And it, it's, a, it's a fertile ground for competition. There's a lot, of, a lot of chance for people to actually make a product that users, be they consumers or businesses, can actually leverage this MarTech in a way that actually does drive efficiency. It has a, a, an obvious payoff for the user in some way, in which case, there is a path to profitability if you want it there, I think. It just means that clever people have to get together and, and kind of get creative and, and forge a path towards it. Yeah, I, I think that there's MarTech, perhaps MarTech is like a slice out of the holistic tech ecosystem. Yeah. And so like MarTech seems a little bit more responsible in terms of capital use and I agree. how they actually use, uh, they try and create, create a path to profitability. Uh, yep. But, you know, MarTech, if you include companies like Google and Meta, I mean, they're very profitable mm. businesses, like a lot of cash. Uh, yeah. But they, their customer is the marketer and the advertiser at the end of the day um, for both companies. That's true. So, the other thing so I was getting, like the there's other, a lot of value the, in it. There totally is. Juan, I wonder if I can also do this, might seem a little bit tangential, but for, for folks listening, the, the other thing that I often say, if, if I'm, you know, for whatever reason, sometimes, um, business schools wheel me out to invite me in for a, to, to give a talk or something. And one thing I often say is be careful not to have a kind of internal bias where you, or sometimes it's a, a sort of su survivor's bias where we look at, we look at standout exceptions and we think they're the rule that I'm going to emulate. So the reality is that Uber is this remarkable business uh, and it has been unprofitable and all this kind of stuff and grown at a ridiculous rate and done all these amazing things. And you have to be impressed by some of the stuff they've done. But actually, they're the exception. Right. So so it's great to have enthusiasm and passion to say, I'm going to be the next Uber of or the next Airbnb of whatever. But we need to remember that actually 
some businesses are inherently better than others. And most of these things, even though we cast our gaze on the ones that are great success stories, actually many of them don't succeed. So so you, you can't necessarily just try and reshape yourself as, you know, for example, the next Uber. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think those are outliers. Um, they're obviously part of a bigger cultural piece, like even with Uber as an example, they're out of Silicon Valley. Was a, I think it was Travis Kalanick's third startup. You know, so right. you know, just, there was a whole bunch of factors. Like I, I often see on Twitter, particularly great startup advice, but it's so unique to that person's situation that right. you can't really take a lot of it. You know, you got to kind of forge your own path. Right. And um, you know, Definitely. those are the outliers. Those are the ones that capture the attention of most uh, entrepreneurs. But on the other, other side, there's some really wonderful, profitable, growing businesses that are doing wonderful things that no one yeah. will ever hear about because they don't have the crazy billion dollar fundraising round. They don't have the the visionary founder that's attempting to do crazy things, you know? So right. I think that, you know, like there's, there's, I think there's part of it is like, for example, Elon Musk, right? Like part of this is who are you worshiping? Like who are you actually seeing as the person that you look up to aspire to be, you know, mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur? And then what do they do in their business? Now, very few people will be able to replicate their network, their connections, their skills, their talent, their philosophy, their worldview, their perspective, and their family, right? Like all of those yep. things feed into successful entrepreneurship. And, so and, I think and plus perhaps, luck one. Yeah. So th the other thing is that, you know, even some of the cleverest people in business that I've met who are kind of sitting on some sort of success story, if they're honest, they'll all say, that along with everything else they contributed, they also got lucky either with timing or something else. So, um, you know, I, I will say that by sort of personality trait one, I'm kind of one of these people that would prefer to shoot from the hip and just sort of give things a crack and, and you know, not very scientific. But all these years that I've spent within the healthcare, you know, the commercial healthcare environment worldwide, that sort of segment of industry, I've been exposed to some really brilliant people on the scientific side, you know, medical doctors and the like, medical researchers and so on. And they've taught me just by sort of osmosis how to rely on good data so that you're not kind of just operating on your own impulse or what sort of comes to mind. So there's a nice tension, I think, for entrepreneurs to say, you've got a lot of this stuff that comes by nature. You know, you've got that spark of entrepreneurship and interest to sort of forge something new. Those are all good qualities. But I think it's a really good thing to foster a bit of tension to say, but I want to as much as possible anchor to that to some something reliable and in the healthcare field for example they will do a lot of what we call randomized controlled trials which are these very big and expensive experiments but you know increasingly that kind of thinking is moving over into marketing so we do have people like byron sharp and colleagues who have started to run high quality search and experiments randomized controlled trials in marketing so that we can actually lean on an evidence base now so i think that's a it's kind of an important thing to remember that even though by temperament, we might, might want to go one way, there are things to kind of call upon for a, a different way of doing things. And, and and you'll certainly see more success in business and in marketing if you kind of realize what your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, and try and supplement those weaknesses in a way that makes sense. Yeah, I I agree. It's being about being data-driven. Um, yeah. Well, I don't like to use that frameology, but I think the idea of, yeah, following data, finding opportunities, and then being able to run experiments, right? Like that's all entrepreneurship. Yeah. That's what starts new companies. But, you know, right. I think the other angle that we haven't discussed is just extreme curiosity. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, a lot of marketers and entrepreneurs have this in common in that they look at the world and they ask why. You know, I've got a four-year-old daughter and she's asking me why all the time, 
you know, and <laughs> it's that sort of curiosity that drives, I think, a different way of thinking about something. So why is this industry the way it is? Or why does this totally. technology work in the way it does? And maybe there's a different way of doing it or a better way of doing it, you know? And that's kind of the creative spark that starts an entire industry, right? Or it starts an entire company or, you know, starts somebody on the entrepreneurship journey. So it's, I think it's fascinating. I think, and we are coming up on time, unfortunately, we can keep talking for a long time here, I think, <laughs> but, but I, I may want to finish on this is that I would say that right now we have this shift from West to East, but we also have a very different political landscape in the East than we do the West, right? For example, mm. China, very different political landscape. Do you have any comments on how, say political ecosystems change how innovation's done or how marketing technologies are being built. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, it certainly can. We should be thankful every day that we live in places where if we have a good idea, we have both the legal, oftentimes the financial access to do these things. So I, I am a form of capitalist. I do believe in in free market economies. I just happen to think they function best when there's also a kind of a well-funded welfare base because I believe in social mobility also, right? So mm. so I, I like the fact that we live in the West where we can show a bit of gumption and take a bit of our own risk and sort of push out and do something ourselves. We do live in a place where you can do that. It's true in Western Europe. It's true in Australia and North America and places like that. In other, in other places, it's less so. I will say that it's fortunately changing and there's no denying that China especially, and India I will say, but China especially has experienced remarkable growth economically for a number of factors, but nobody there is blind to the fact that they are dependent on commerce and business and, and the movements of markets and the relaxation of things like price and controls in order to fuel that growth. And, that, you know, if you were a despot sitting in charge of a, of a place where it's a bit harder to do business, you would be aware by now that there's enough of your enormous population that have, have had a taste of some of the comforts that have come with, you know, increasing access to, to economic equity that it would be very hard, even though some individuals, for example, in China are trying this sort of thing, it would be very hard to go back to um, very tight and controls that would remove the opportunity from business from individuals. It's far tougher over there than it is here to kind of get up and moving. But on the other hand, you have this kind of happy network effect in places like Bangalore, where I've spent a fair bit of time in India, where people who may have seen their family history before them living a pretty tough life but if they've worked hard at school and maybe become either uh, an accountant or a, a computer engineer or, or something, some sort of a skill that could be utilized within the startup environment, places like Bangalore, which is often called the Silicon Valley of, of India. Most places have a Silicon Valley of their country. <laughs> uh, Bangalore is a bit that way. China has similar locations. I think what this actually ends up doing is from a grassroots level, it can start to shape the control that sits over them at a governmental level. Now, happily in India, love him or hate him, and there's lots of reasons to be critical of the current political leader over there. But one thing that he did do uh, was he realised that there was a need to create access to banking to the whole population. Imagine a place of 1.5 billion people, roughly speaking, um, many of whom are living in, in really troubling levels of poverty and, and uh, somewhat disconnected from the sorts of things you and I might take for granted. But in a single sort of generation, the whole population to, to a high degree of success was accessible to banking now, which has made a big difference. So you can make a payment super quick and easy by zapping over a payment to someone on your phone these days in India. And that alone has created a kind of liberty for people and new prospects. 
And so if you do grow up in a place like Bangalore, not only uh, do you have more personal opportunity to kind of start a business, but you're mixing with people who are thinking creatively. If you need somebody who can build you a nice website or get an email campaign going for you, you go to a coffee shop and you'll find somewhere there that can do it. It has a lot of the similar traits that we think of, of, of the old school San Jose, just in the late nineties. And so I think that's a very good thing and, and it has a, sort of an upward pressure on shaping governments as well. So I, I look at China, I've got a lot of empathy for some hardworking, clever people there who are navigating what is often a tough location. They're not the only one in the world. And I'm hopeful that the the many good things that they've brought their nation starts to resonate, resonate enough across the population that those in charge, often you know elderly people who are desperately trying to cling to control, that they will start to influence that. And, and you know, Although there's no technology can be used for evil in places, but it can certainly be used for good as well. And so I hope that what we're seeing in places like Iran, for example, or at a social level where tech is actually helping to afford change to a place, I think that that can happen in, in those other locations too. So it's it, we've just never seen change at this rapid pace or scale before in history as, you, as we started this chat. That's certainly happening now. And I think it does have the opportunity to change lives of individuals but also their families, communities, and then rolled up to their whole nation. And, and so I'm quite bullish on that happening. I know the world is kind of looking a little bit crazy at the moment, but the underlying story, one, I'm convinced, is a good one, where human beings, if we make some wise choices, we can use technology to harness the better parts of human nature, not only the, the worst parts, which sometimes you know makes the, the headlines. So I, I, overall, I'm pretty bullish on those places, and, and it's why I'm continuing to spend some time there. I'm less... You know, as a side note, I'm less convinced of um, until things do change, I wouldn't be making enormous long-term bets on things like TikTok because I can see them potentially very rapidly being withdrawn from markets that you can't use it in India, for example. It could disappear from the West unless there's some big changes there. So, you know, in total, I'd say I'm I'm, I'm very positive about the impacts that, that uh, technology, marketing and entrepreneurship can have in these places. Um, and in the more immediate term, just having a sort of a wisdom and caution about how you choose to tread. Yes, I I think that's a great way to end our episode with the spirit of optimism that technology can make uh, the world a better place. And, and that, you know, that uh, people use technology to serve each other um, instead of taking advantage or um, controlling yeah. others as well. And so... I think that's fascinating. Um, so many great insights. But my last question to you, AJ, is where can we find and continue this discussion with you online? Yeah, so um, you're, you're welcome to look at a, a website, which I update far too infrequently, ajrollsby.com. But the place to catch me much more rapidly, I'm, I'm one of these annoying people that's uh, far too engaged with uh, LinkedIn. So if you search for AJ Rollsy, that's R-O-L-L-S-Y on LinkedIn, I'm pretty sure there's only one of me. Um, you can find me and uh, and you'll see that I'm, I'm, I'm chatting there pretty frequently. Great. Well, we are interviewing people like AJ Rollsy, people who are researching and innovating in the marketing technology space um, every two weeks on Making Sense of MarTech podcast. So if you'd like to uh, listen and subscribe, you can go to themartechweekly.com. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for joining, AJ. Thanks, Juan. It was a, a real pleasure. Looking forward to, uh, to hearing some of your future guests.